Public Enemies Minister of Information, Professor Griff, celebrates the 30-year anniversary of the best hip-hop album ever. Thursday, June 28, 2018, at the Jam Handy. Witness a special behind-the-music unsung tribute to Public Enemies, It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back album. Hip-hop performances from Mahogany Jones, Kari Way Frazier, and more will honor the landmark album. The Black History 101 Mobile Museum and Khalid El Hakim will be present with special artifacts, memorabilia, and music from Public Enemy. Tickets are $20 and limited. Purchase your tickets today online at www.detroitisdifferent.com. This event is produced and supported by Detroit is Different, Black History 101 Mobile Museum, Men of Courage, and Lauren Hood. Tune in weekly to the Piper Carter podcast with Piper Carter for a conscious take on music, arts, politics, and fashion. The founder of We Found Hip Hop has a say on what you should know about culture with a balanced conscience. Subscribe on Apple iTunes or Google Play to the Piper Carter podcast to hear the stories and thoughts of Piper Carter. Follow Piper Carter on Instagram at Piper Carter. All right, welcome everybody. This is the Piper Carter podcast. So um, normally we have our brother Kari Frazier in the building, but Kari is working on a very important event that we're going to let you guys know about um, that's coming up really, really soon. So I am here, but I have a wonderful guest, my lovely and amazing and beautiful sister, um, Sister Sadie Saar, who is so incredible and amazing and dynamic and... I'm just going to get right into it because um, Sadie don't play no games. She's busy. She's got a lot of stuff to do. And, um, yeah, so let's get to it. So how are you feeling today, Miss Sadie? I am tired. I'm tired and I am upset. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah. Okay, we're going to get into that. (laughs) So first, who is Sadie Sar? Like, let folks know who you are. Like, just tell us about yourself. You know, where you're from, you know, uh, what you like, what you do, what you've been doing here in Detroit. You know, um, we know you're a mother. We know that you graduated from Mary Grove. Uh, was it social justice was your major? Yes, my major in um, at Mary Grove was a master's of social justice. Okay, so you have a master's of social justice um, from Mary Grove. Great uh program mm-hmm. you know world renowned program um and also too um you're an activist um you teach african dance yes and you're actually african which is like <laughs> rare in detroit <laughs> for people that teach african dance <laughs> i know it's a joke but um yeah so how about maybe just take us through like who you are and just a little bit about your history here in detroit uh, well, like you said, my name is Sadie Sar. I'm one of the oldest daughter of a family of 13 kids. Um, my father passed away two years ago. My mom is still alive. She's in Senegal. And the majority of my brothers and sisters are in Senegal. I have maybe two of them that are right now in Europe, in France more particularly. So I came to Detroit and to the U.S. in 2003. And I have been in the city since then. Mm, went to school, Wayne County Community College, um, achieved an uh, associate degree from there, 
a bachelor's from Wayne State School of Social Work and like you said earlier a master's from uh, Mary Grove School of Social Justice um, I teach African dance I actually start dancing when I came to Detroit I was dancing before um, start dancing in 2004 2005 start teaching African dance in 2011 and have never stopped there was a time where I was a co-founder of a dance um, a dance company in the city adult dance company for a couple of years and continue teaching African dance folklore and culture um, for me that experience is like um, very very uh, enjoyable because I get to share myself I get to share my culture I get to introduce people connect with other folks um, and still keeping my feet into the culture that actually seeded me and uh, nurtured me so it's uh, it's a pleasure to teach and to connect through dance and uh, talk about who we are as African people whether we were brought here centuries ago or whether we are newcomers and um, connect like that and continue sharing and continue passing on the culture um in my time in detroit i have done several stuff so as a social worker i worked as a social worker and there was a time where i was a case manager with nso um with what what is that called nso the neighborhood service organizations okay and um something else is i constantly consistently did since I have been here is advocating for the rights of immigrants so as I hit barriers myself and trying to figure out why I can't do certain stuff or why the law is a certain way advocated for changes because um, when we talk about immigration usually in the national narrative people imagine Latinos or Hispanic people mm -hmm. so in the conversation you see less of the black and African immigrant mm -hmm. so centering the narrative of black and African immigrant is very important mm -hmm. because if you don't center them then they don't have access to resources mm -hmm. on one side and on, on the other side the achievement is never really um, highlighted so most of the time people equate you with somebody who is uh, unable to assimilate somebody who have a thick accent and maybe don't smell good because somebody told me that when, I, when they think about African immigrant mm. they think about the smell so being able to dispel some of those myths but also push back the narrative is very important mm -hmm. and I have um, been a very active member of the community when it comes to advocating for um, immigrant in general, African and black immigrant in particular in the city. So still holding the flag up and high, um, speaking truth to power when the need be, but also ensuring that we are building sustainable con communities and ensuring that the community also is being held accountable for actually integrating themselves into the spaces that where they live. Mm. Yep. So thank you for that. So I want to go back over a couple of things you said. Mm -hmm. So um, it's interesting because, like, I grew up in the so-called African-centered community, mm -hmm. right? Went to a so-called African-centered school and participate in so-called African-centered activities. And something that we always talk about is that 
I want to call it, is it a disconnect between the African culture and then what's actually created and practiced here as you've seen it? Like, I wanted you to, I thought what was really interesting that time when you were telling me (laughs) that uh, when you came here, you didn't expect to like teach African dance because it was so much a part of your culture that you were like, really? You want me to teach you this and like pay me or something like that? And you were saying like, yeah, I can do it. And then it's like when you went home, your friends and or your family was like, really? You go, <laughs> you teaching? You have these other skills, right? Where you are, like you said, you do social justice and you have uh, these academic skills, but you're like making a living teaching dance. Can you kind of talk about that, like that cultural aspect of that? Well. I don't know if it is a disconnect, but it's definitely um, miscommunication. The understanding that we have of what African culture is or what that is supposed to look like and how it is practiced. So for my fellow Senegalese, they did not understand that you're going to go all the way to America to teach African dance because you have to look at the idea of how America is sold, mm-hmm. you know, outside. Okay. Right. So when you look at the narrative of America being the beacon of democracy, America being the place where you come to succeed, mm-hmm. things such as dancing in a community that where I come from, where the arts are not always the one that are held high, mm-hmm. where, you know, if you go to school, we are expected to be a doctor, a lawyer, or things like that. And we dance for our own pleasure. We dance for our own community things. Mm -hmm. Some people did not understand why would you make money. They didn't see it as being something um, that valuable or Mm -hmm. something that sexy. Like, you know, (laughs) you're a doctor. That's something, you know, that stays you as somebody. And why would you do art? Why would you go all the way to America for that? So for some people, it was like, what a waste of time, Mm -hmm. right? But it's also speak about the lack of knowledge of, first of all, how art is seen and culture is seen and value here, mm-hmm. number one. Number two, the lack of understanding of the political um, and social settings in this country, where actually in the African-American community, African dance have a very specific role. Mm-hmm. African dance, African culture have a very specific role. So when you have people holding on to these little remnants of what was once there Mm -hmm. so the importance is not at the same level and having this back and forth conversation because even me when i first came here yes i love taking african dance class but it was just that at the beginning i have not seen the deeper connections Mm-hmm. The more I took classes, the more I spoke with people who have been practicing it for 30, 40 years, just exchanging knowledge. What does it mean? Here is what this song means this. But for the Sere ethnic group, it means this. When you cross the border in Guinea, it's almost similar. And having now to tie it, it gives a whole new light of who you are mm-hmm. and what do you carry. Right. But when we grow up in Senegal, we just take all of that for granted most okay. of the time. And yeah, it was, it's still sometimes a funny conversation because people were like, she's crazy. <laughs> That's my folks. But I 
think it's something important because when your children are now born in the US mm -hmm. and you are raising them and you're looking at the fact that you don't have a community around you mm -hmm. to complete their, um, their education. Okay. Like growing up in Senegal, there is a lot of things culturally that my mom did not need to teach me or say to me, but I would pick up because I'm growing up in that community. Right. I can see it, I can hear it, I can smell it. So it becomes natural. Right. But when you want to transfer those, it's only me and her yeah. in a community that is very foreign from the knowledge I have. I have to be intentional yeah. into seeding the culture that I want her to keep. So not having that community around you now creates this big vacuum. Mm. Then having an African drum and dance community or Afrocentric community kind of fill in the void okay. that is left by just no, not being in the space at all. Right. So it gives a whole new uh, value to what you know and what you have. Speaking the language, knowing the code, um, understanding the relationship, how do you talk to an elder, how do you not talk to an elder, mm -hmm. what do you do in the community, what don't you do in the community, mm -hmm. why is it important to keep the language. Going to African dance is the only spaces I have to make sure that her Africanness is seeded with her. Mm. Because if not, I don't have nothing else to give her. Wow. And saying that, oh, we are going to be assimilated will be totally wrong because right. I don't understand or I don't own all aspects of American uh, culture. So then if I don't give her what I have, what am I giving her? Wow. Yeah. I mean, I think you, I think for me, um, you represent should I call it um, a passport into the African community? I mean, is, or should we say that? Is there an actual African community in Detroit? <laughs> yes, yeah. there okay. is. I mean, there is 14,000 African immigrants in Metro Detroit alone. Mm -hmm. And of course, we are Senegalese, Guinean, Nigerian, Togo, Gabon, Ivory Coast, Mali, name it, Eritrea, Burkina Faso, Gambia. Mm -hmm. So there is a lot, a lot of uh, African immigrants in the city. And you have all these communities. We have community centers that are in the city. We have mosques that we own. Of course, our ladies are known for their braid shops or their clothing shops, clothing stores couple of other people you know own tax and administrative service offices and also restaurant yeah so the african community is very well uh, seated and uh i mean you find them around the community if you really want to look for them it's mm -hmm. not that difficult so like um a city some cities have what kind of like clusters of um ethnic groups um are there clusters of so-called West African or East African or in, 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 in Detroit or Metro Detroit? Well, in Metro Detroit, yes, but this is the 
the um, originality of Detroit and I think it's linked on the fact that the city is widespread. Yeah. The community is widespread. Okay. So you find us everywhere. You won't find like African town or Senegalese right. town, like how you find little Senegal in yeah. Harlem for a while. No, you won't find that. But definitely in the city and spread within the, 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 the confine of the city. Right, right. Yes. And so um, in terms of how would we call it, like as a operating as a community, um, how does... Um, what I guess would it be like tribal differences or country differences? How does that or does that play into the community aspect of um, Africans that live here? It doesn't play a big role in the community aspect because we congregate together as Africans mm -hmm. around things that are important. Like, okay, one of the staple um, congregation of all African is the 4th of July All African Picnic. Okay. That usually is host um, at Detroit, in Detroit, and uh, Eliza Howell Park. And okay. you would find six, seven to 12,000 Africans barbecuing, playing soccer all day, playing music, and everybody, you know, wrapping their flag and their music. Right. If not in the Muslim African community, they congregate every Friday to their prayer sites mm -hmm. and the celebration of Eids is, a, is, a, is an excuse to get together right. and all be together and celebrate as Muslim together right. and if not you'll find them you know at the restaurant at the grocery stores whenever we have an excuse to congregate we make sure that we do for our kids graduations for weddings name it we right. make sure that we get together we celebrate together we eat and uh, yeah so what, um, in terms of your Senegalese culture, what do you find um, most, like, significantly different between the way, because you also went to Paris first. Right? Yes. So what do you find significantly different about living here in Detroit um, culturally, as opposed to, like, when you lived maybe in Paris or when you lived um, in Senegal? Something that... You know what I mean? It's kind of like, wow, that that it kind of shocked you or you found kind of strange, interesting. I don't know. Um, what would I say was very shocking? I mean, what is very culturally shocking to me and it still is would be maybe the relationship between children and children and elders. Okay. This is something that irks me. <laughs> anytime I hear a younger person disrespecting or not showing enough respect to my taste okay. to their elders, it always gets me because I'll be like, you don't talk to your elders <laughs> like right, that. Right. But beside that, no, because within the Senegalese community, they do a good job at keeping up with their culture in general. So. Okay. What we see is the clash of generations like in any other culture, especially with, with our kids who are born here. And it's hard for them because they have to navigate both worlds on a daily basis. Right. They walk out the door in the morning, they're in America all day with their American friends, their American identities. They come back home and the parents are like, excuse me, right. you need to get a visa, this is Senegal, right? <laughs> <laughs> so. 
what right. you did all day doesn't fly here. Right. Like my daughter is one of those that have to adjust on a daily basis. And I understand it's hard for them, but it's their, um, it's their plight. You know, that's theirs. That's not mine. Mm -hmm. I came here as an adult, as in Senegalese. I, that's what am I, right? Yeah. I was socialized differently. Yeah. She is being socialized in, okay, when I go to school, these are my friends. We're on the west side going to school, on the east side, whatever. But when she come home, her mom is like, this is Senegal, baby girl. Get yeah. your act together. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, it's a fight. But I think it's an interesting one. Mm -hmm. And um, sometimes we bump heads. Sometimes the parents are very upset. And sometimes we don't understand the children where they're coming from at all. Mm -hmm. Or we don't even try to understand where they're coming from because we don't mm -hmm. have no interest in to even trying. So for them, it's they have to fight it out. And they have to find their own balance. Because I think it's important for them not to resent who they are or who their parents are, but not to resent either who they are as being born here in the United States and being American. But they have to find the balance yeah. between those two identities that are actually inherently theirs and make the best out of it. So like right. I tell my daughter all the time, I cannot do what an American mom would have done because right. I'm not. Right. So I'm just going to be who I am. Mm -hmm. Now she's just going to have to take the best out of the two worlds. And hopefully as an adult, she, she will be a beautiful flower. Yeah. I love that. And she is. She's really <laughs> awesome. I love, Thank I love you. her so much. Um, so something, one thing when... Uh, that I, that I always, like, I should say, remember about you or something that I hold close to my heart. Um, it was kind of a long time ago now, but um, we were at the Charles H. Wright. I don't remember what the event was, but I remember I saw you and I was like, oh my God, she looks incredible. And my cousins who teach African dance and do African dance were like, oh, you gotta meet Sadie. Sadie's, you know, so incredible. And I remember um, they introduced us and the first thing I said was, like, how gorgeous you were and the way you were dressed and you, you know, had all of your cultural clothing on. And, uh, and you had this um, clutch, and it was made out of, I think, straw or yes. something. And it was so cute. It was shaped into an, a heart. And I was like, oh, my God, that is so cute. And you were like, here, take it. And I was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> and But that actually taught me something. You know, I, did, I, don't, I didn't have that experience I guess as an American where you say you like something and then someone says here take it and you're like yeah that's that's my culture that's what we do I was like oh my god I'm gonna come over your house and tell you like, everything <laughs> in your closet but that for me it there was a teaching moment like you actually I guess in in those couple of seconds brought me into your culture like I really appreciate that and I appreciate that you you know you go to Senegal frequently and you bring the clothes back you ask people you know do you want me to bring your things back you make sure you take people and teach them about where you are and you just went and came back so can you talk about that was that february yes can you can you talk about that trip so in february i was actually i was in senegal in january january because um, right. i went for the prayers for my dad um second year and zarina who is a 
friend of me and you. Yes. Shout out to Zarina. Yes. So Zarina has this awesome program, Enliven Your Soul, yes. where she takes a group of women travel around the world. She takes them everywhere. Mm -hmm. And the purpose of the travel is one, to push the barrier of their comfort zone. Okay. So she takes them to spaces where they get to experience the culture like the natives over there. Right. So and also they have um a entrepreneurship component part of it and also a charity or a giving part of it. Okay. So this year she was going to Senegal and she, she texts me and she said, Hey, would you be part of the trip? And my first response was like, No <laughs> <laughs> Why would I do that? And she was like well, I, I really need somebody there in Senegal who knows the country, who will go around the cities with all these ladies and help them, you know, have a good time. Right. And I was like, I don't know if I want to do that because at the beginning I was very worried of the fact that maybe I would not be in the right state of mind, mm -hmm. me going for my daddy's funeral, yeah. I didn't feel like, okay, entertaining anybody else. Yeah. Then she keep on talking and we keep on having this back and forth conversation and she's sending me the, 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 the trip details and I'm like, why are you doing this? No, you could do that. So I have all this input and she's like, this is why I ask you <laughs> to be part of the trip. Wow. And I said, well, I will be part of the trip only if you guys go to my village okay because i don't want to run around all senegal right. for 13 days with you guys and you don't even go see where i'm from right and she said yes okay so i was like okay i'll wait on you guys so everything was set up and i was gonna wait on them and be the other tour guide with the ladies so they they they, they came like three four days right after my father's ceremony and I met them in Dakar and uh, my, my, my. So the beginning of the trip, we were visiting all these great um, Muslim cities okay. that hold all this history. And oh my God, from the get go, yeah, it was eye opening. It was so many oh my god moment mm. during That's the whole beautiful. trip spiritually it was very heavy and very charged mm. and out of nowhere out of nowhere we started with dakar we went to gore island and mm. the visit in gore was so heavy yeah so many stuff happened in the trip then we went from there we started visiting these spiritual sites and places that i would not have access to Mm. Why, in regular time because it's like when you go to the Zawiya they don't op open where the mausoleum is so people mm. come to the Zawiya you pray and you leave okay every single mosque that have a mausoleum mm -hmm. that we visited yeah we come to the door we say who we are for whatever reason we'll find somebody who will be like well let me open the inside chamber for Whoa. you guys and it happened like that in every single site. Wow. Like for whatever reason, these men, these knowledgeable people were so open to share mm. more than they usually do. Okay. And it's just flipped the trip 
totally. That's that's amazing. It was an amazing trip. It was an amazing trip. We were very tired. Um, the bus rides sometimes were very challenging. For the ladies going to the village. <laughs> yeah. They're, and they're they, all from Detroit, right? They're all from D- Detroit, Atlanta, New York, Maryland. They come from all spaces in the U.S. Okay. We went to the village, and that was a bit pushing the envelope because okay. to go to my village, you have to take a boat ride. Mm-hmm. 45 minutes. Oh, okay. So we came in there and it's a f- small fishing boat mm-hmm. and we had to put our things plus ourselves in How the boat. How many people? Like <laughs> 10? 13. 13. Okay. 13 women. And wow, uh, that's a powerful number. 13 women. Yes. And like um, one of the sisters came to me. I remember she was like, when she looked at the boat, she find out that, that we didn't have um life jacket. Because the guy, he came in and he didn't bring the life jacket. He's like, oh, I'm going to go pick up Sadie and his friends. And for him, Sadie is doing this all day. I don't need life jackets. And the sister was like, I just wanted to know I am not comfortable getting into this boat with no life jacket. And I don't know how to swim. Oh, okay. And I was just like, okay, but that's the only way we're going to get in there. Yeah. We had to work it. But once we made it to the village, everything was <laughs> was way better. But I have to commend their open mind and willingness yeah. because that was totally out of every single one comfort done. Okay, that was high. That there was no negotiation possible, and <laughs> then we, we did not have no alternative site to spend mm-hmm. the night. Mm-hmm. So you got to cross yeah. this ocean in a fishing boat. Yeah for 45 minutes and you yeah. don't see nothing else but water around you. This okay. is this is the reality. Yeah. And we went to the village. What is is it a, it's an ocean or a river? It's an ocean. It's an it's, ocean. It's an okay. Atlantic Ocean. Yeah, okay. Our village actually sits in the in the embouchure in the in the opening where the Atlantic Ocean meets with the river. Okay. That's where this village is. Wow. So you still don't see nof- nothing for 45 minutes. Nothing. Wow. It's you the water, the hot sky. So there's sharks in there. <laughs> I guess so, but that was not my worry. So we went and they spent two days fetching water by themselves at the well, taking bucket showers. That's incredible. Having the electricity cut off half of the day. Right. That's... that's, They did did good. Par for the course. Well, they enjoyed it. It was... We c- when we came back to Dakar, they all was like, they were glad they went. They were glad they had um, the experience, that part. They didn't do only the museums, the city, right. and things like that. But being able to travel inland and really seeing how the natives live, mm-hmm. that was, that was for them, it was very, they, they really enjoyed it. And I have to um, give a shout out to, um, to Zarina us again, for having imagined this idea and mm-hmm. actually organizing these trips where she takes these women and they 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 keep on going so she have other dates other spaces and each country is different okay and you know it's i think it's a great way of um learning how to connect with yourself and learning how to connect with others 
and yeah. you know having the experience to really um, see people where they are, where mm -hmm. they come from, what their realities are, and come back and compare what you have. Maybe you come back and say, hey, I appreciate my my shower better. Or maybe right. you come home like, I'm not going to waste no more electricity right. after seeing this. Or maybe you come home and you're like, okay, you know what? I want to be able to help this ONG, this association, these women groups doing this because I think I can do more. Mm. So that that was great. And so that's called Enliven Your Soul. Yeah, that's called Enliven Your Soul. Yeah. That, that's, that's like really incredible. She's going to do another one. Mm -hmm. um, I think December or something like that. She yes. goes someplace else. Yes, okay. she is. She's preparing for another trip. And I would recommend anybody who who want to try to go. She so takes when you went, woman, you visit yeah. your family, your yeah. mom. Yes. How, how was that? Because you had to go for a funeral. Yes. So how was, like, because when was the last time you had, like, physically been to Senegal since the, then? The year before. So, like, one year? Yes. Okay. I went at the my when my father died. Mm. Yeah. So that was really heavy. Because your father, can you tell us about, like, who your father was and his, this, his significance? Yeah, my daddy. <laughs> I'm a daddy girl. <laughs> so my father was a great person. Mm -hmm. um, my father was in the army. He was a colonel in the army. And during his 35 years of service, my father um, was the lead commandant who left, who led the, R, the, the African Minoir when they went to Rwanda mm. at the beginning of the... Um, of the genocide, mm. but they were the first one there to say, hey, there is a problem on the ground and we need the UN to to do something. Mm -hmm. So the African uh, Union had sent um, folks there before to assess the situation and he spent four years in uh, in Rwanda doing, um, doing peacekeeping work. My father also, actually way before that, in the 80s, he did peacekeeping peacekeeping work in Lebanon also mm. when the when the wars was raging in Lebanon in the 1979 and 80, 81 my father was serving as a peacekeeper um, went to Liberia during mm. the war um, had some work done in the Sierra Leone issues so his army his 35, 35 years of service was very marked with all his peacekeeping missions and um, at home, he was known to be an architect. So he worked in the army as an architect and uh, rebuilding bridges, rebuilding schools and things like that. Um, as a father, he was great. Mm -hmm. He was very, uh, he was an awesome man. Um, very just, my father was um, true to himself and his values. He. He made sure that we know who we are. He made sure that if you have to die for telling the truth, then yes, your head is going to roll off. Wow. But you're not going to lie. Um, uh, so love him, love him to pieces. Love him to pieces. I am um, ultimate daddy's, <laughs> daddy's girl. Right, right. And when he passed away, it was a surprise and a devastation because we weren't expecting it at all. Okay. I remember when he was young, he used to be like, well, I'm going to be 111. Whatever reason, he had that number. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, we hold on to that number. I right. didn't think my dad was going to be less than 111. Mm -hmm. And, well, he was not. Um, he was not. 
So that's, yeah, that's my daddy. That's my daddy. So God bless your daddy. I know, right? So tell us about your mom. Oh, <laughs> poor lady. My mom is the one left with 13 crazy character. Wow. For real. Um, at the beginning of this Ramadan, I called her and I was just like, may Allah bless your soul oh. out of nowhere. And she was like, why? I said, because when I look at myself and I look at all my brothers and sisters, and I'm like, wow, she is the one to deal with all of this. Wow. May Allah bless your soul. Yeah. My mom is a very, very nice and loving uh, person. My mom gives without asking for return. Mm. She don't ask for nothing. Wow. Nothing. But she is always giving. When people hear you say you can't, um, you can't pour from an empty cup, yeah. I always frown. Mm. Because I always think about my mom. Yeah. Because I don't see people pouring into her cup. Mm. But I see her always having something to give. Wow. So I always frown when I hear it. Because I'd be like, no. Because <laughs> when I think of her, like she's always giving. Always, yeah. all the time. Without expecting nothing in return. Mm. Without having ills of why you didn't give it back. My mom don't ask for recognition. Yeah. Oh no. She loves just for the sake of loving. Mm. And she loves all her children just for the sake of loving. Wow. And so, you know, even if you want to be, let's say you want to be, I don't know, fascistious, whatever you want to say, and say, well, she loves this one person better than the other one. You know by saying that sentence that you're lying. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's like you cannot really catch her and pin her to well I know you like this child of you better <laughs> <laughs> because what she did is like she understood that every single one of, of her children needs a different kind of care mm. and a different kind of love and right. that's what she gives you right that's belong to you because this is what you need wow. that's belong to Aminata because this is what Aminata need this is how I am going to relate with Salu because this is what Salu needs. Yeah. And when you wanna play that game, she will call you up on it quick. Wow. Like and you know she's right. Wow. But I you know, I smile. I as I get older when I look at her, I I'm just like, Wow, I wish I was like that. Maybe wow. one day. <laughs> Maybe one day. So so all your different brothers and sisters, they do different stuff. <laughs> Yeah. Like oh, what wow. what kind of stuff do Oof. they do? Well, so our elder brother uh, wears several hats. So he's a PhD in economics. He uh, runs a university. Um, he's a writer, already published four, no, six books, excuse me. And uh, he's a musician. And he he's a researcher in economics. He's very well known in Senegal about his research on development following macro or microeconomics uh, sciences, but also always bringing it into our cultural uh, understanding because mm. he thinks that um, Africa can do more and have the 
possibility to do more on the economical level if we apply the right terms and the right calculation if we stop actually copying and pasting maybe the what the gdp is supposed to look like mm. because he's always arguing that there are so many other factors that are not being taken in account when we calculate the gdp you know on a western level side that don't actually reflect the reality on the ground right. and he is one of those who thinks that um african realities and uh uh life politics um culture business need to be looked at with a whole different lenses that have a whole african flavor into it mm. taking in consideration all what we have to offer okay and not only applying these calculation or these models that was created somewhere else and pasted into the african continent and then saying hey it's not working mm. so for him like this paste and copy is not the formula right. or further that the formula was made up to keep Africa the way it is today right and that it is it is one of those who's really pulling the conversation on the ground in Africa of how do we reevaluate ourselves how do we rethink ourselves and how do we rethink our values and what development is he have this saying that i really love where he's saying that if you are the elder of the family So why are you trying to keep up with a toddler? Mm. And he thinks that you know Africa doesn't have to catch up to no other right. continent or any other models, right. because we are where the elders of this society, because this is where culture and this is where the humanity was born, and that maybe it is time for us to take our rightfully so space in this family that is the whole human family mm. understanding that life started with us mm. and that we have much to offer okay and we have to recognize it and you know stand on our ground what's his name so people can buy his books oh <laughs> feluin sar f e l w i n e sar s a r r feluin feluin means uh loved by everyone okay <laughs> <laughs> he sounds like your dad maybe like influenced by you know th that kind of philosophy I think we were all influenced by my dad mm -hmm. Ferwin is still quite different from my dad okay he's quite different okay. I mean we can't find any other elder brother yeah. and I think we are spoiled because um it is wonderful to not to have to go outside of your household to look for a role model. Wow. And my mom or my dad, my elder brother certainly didn't give us the choice to go look for an, a role model somewhere else. Wow. And that for me it's like one of the greatest gifts. That's powerful. It's it's changed the whole notion of who you are and self-esteem mm. and what do you have to achieve and how do you get to do that wow like when all of that is just modeled into your own network like yeah. close to you yeah that's 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 priceless it is and with him that's what we have it's like hey you want to go have a phd your brother already have one you want to you right. know push the envelope on this thing oh he already talked about it right. you want to talk about after afrotopia oh pick up your own brother's book <laughs> <I Right. mean laughs> that's really awesome it's so 
So it's, tell me about some of your other your other siblings. My other siblings um, are all into the arts, music in particular. Okay. So my sister Aminata, Blue Ami, how we call her, she comes after me. She would be what you would call a producer of events. Okay. Right. Um, a PR. She's the she's a bomb director of marketing okay. and setting up events and oh she just ran Af um afropunk dakar oh wow yes because wow. she was sick in march when i was leaving senegal she's like hey i'm gonna pitch afropunk dakar when i'm in dakar when i'm in paris with the guys from afropunk to see if we can bring it to senegal and I was like, hey, it's a good idea. Yeah. In May, it happened. Okay. Wow. Afro What's her name? Afro Ami. We call her Blue Ami. Blue in, Ami. Yeah. In May, it happened. It, she, she set it up three, four days. Uh, nothing was missing. Wow. Rashad was invited. Wow. She had all these folks from the US, from France to come. So wow. that's incredible. It was crazy. And I was green jealous that I couldn't <laughs> make it in Senegal in May wow. for three days. I was so upset. And I was like, Wow. Shout this out is to happening. Ami. Congratulations I, on that. I know. Wow. So after her is Sister Thai. Uh, with the love process movement, she sings. Okay. She's, an, um, she's a uh, performing artist. After that, um, we have uh, Mashnoon, another performing artist with a law degree. Hold on, let me come back. Nima is a performing artist with um, <laughs> with a degree in sociology, a master's okay. in sociology. Then you have Mashnoon Jibi, performing artist with a degree in law. Then you have Salyu, who is also a performing artist, a filmmaker, writer, theater. Uh, he sets up plays and he also teaches at one of the universities in Senegal. After him, we have Sahad with a master's in marketing and communication, performing artist. Mm -hmm. And we have uh, Yusufa, rap performing artist with a master's in, uh, I don't even know what he has a master's in, but he is a PhD candidate right now. Okay. So everybody is in the arts. Okay, and, so and, and education as and well. And education. So my youngest other brothers and sisters are still in college. Okay. Um, going to school. <laughs> it's, wow. a, it's a crazy household. That's incredible. <laughs> it's a that's, crazy that's household. That's an incredible family network, you know, and you guys are all able to, like you said, work together, talk, you know, consult, listen. I mean, that's really powerful, actually. You know what I mean? It's like a dynasty. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that. so I have a, I have like, this is like a random question. You know, like in the African Center community, we always talk about um, kings and queens. Yes. Like, can you talk about that a little bit? Like, we've had conversations about it, but I wanted to get your take on like, just that whole thing. Well, kings and queens existed in Africa, um, but not everybody was born in that. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, slavery being what it is folks was brought here and all of that was somehow somewhere lost right mm. in the um, in the midst of all the oppressions that was um that was applied and enforced on people who was who were brought here and enslaved in africa today you still have families that still hold on to their titles you still have communities that give and pay homage to the descendants of uh, kings and queens and the families are still looked up upon uh, their behavior is looked upon and the way they are being uh, raised is also looked upon because it's still incumbent upon you to fulfill the legacy of your ancestors okay. even though today we are a republic so the parents if they know if your lineage and know and they make sure you know who you are Right. And also they set the expectation mm. to what the lineage was supposed to be or what the lineage is supposed to look like based on what happened before um, the colonization. So you will always find here people who come from Africa and come from, from families who was ruling families. And sometimes you can spot them because sometimes you can look at their behavior or the way they speak or something that they do that is kind of different. You can mm. tell this is not a commoner. And if you dig a little bit, you soon find out that no, effectively, his family traditionally is a ruling family. Mm. Now, in the other side here, we have the conversations where being a king and being a queen is, um, how can I say? is uh is have twofold in the conversation one of them serves the self-esteem okay. of people that everything was stripped out of them right where you really have to remind them that they did not come from dirt Right. even though they were made to feel like they come mm. from dirt even though the conversation continued to talk about how many people are dying in somalia from hunger mm -hmm. acting like there is no hunger in the u.s when one right. over four children in the america lives in poverty and mm. is actually hungry mm. so when you see the narratives being brought up and being held on so tight, mm -hmm. it serves to break that conversation right. where people need to hold on to something that is very respectful okay. and to call back mm -hmm. and take back this respect that somebody is still trying to take away from you yeah. because the narrative have not changed. Yeah. Because people who brought you here still want you to believe that you were nothing before. Mm. when actually it's far-fetched from what the reality was. Exactly. But that's also one of the remnant of what slavery was and all these years of uh, oppression on, on Africans enslaved and today African-American. Mm. So in the, in the, in the, in the African-centered community, this conversation of us being kings and queens serves that very, m that purpose very much so, mm -hmm. where we have to actually take back this narrative and reappropriate our own, our own culture, our, our own history. Right. But I don't think that it means that every African-American that comes from the slave trade was a king or a queen per mm -hmm. se in their blood. Right. But this, the importance to uh, to let 
other folks to let yourself and let other folks understand that no the narrative that have been bestowed upon us have been pure lies right and that the countries the continent the places that where we are from we were a very dignified much so group of people yeah. regardless if you were Akan, if you were Serer, if you are Bete, if you are Timini, it doesn't matter. All those ethnic groups were dignified people mm -hmm. and they lived as dignified people. They lived in societies that have rules and regulations and everybody had their space and their word to say in how society works. There yeah. were builders, there was architects, there were mathematicians, there were scientists, there was agriculturists. Mm -hmm. Everything that you want in a society to succeed and turn was happening in those countries, in those spaces before mm -hmm. the slave trade. Right. So, so the conversation is, is important and pretty much still very up to date to have. Okay. Because today we're here talking about Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. But it's a need. Yeah. That comes from so many years of injustices mm. that have been laid upon a group of people. Mm. So even though the physical chain of slavery was taken out, right. it was replaced by other systems. So the right. idea of bringing African into this continent and counting them as animals mm. is still here. Right. And the effect of so many laws that was created to ensure that the devaluations of African lives continues bring us to 2018. Right. Where we still have to fight and say Black Lives Matter. What are some of the, I want to say, what are some of the truths that exist that you would say, like you've seen, like we, we hear the myths, like we hear a lot of myths, or um, I would say in American culture, what I, uh, what I have seen or acknowledge was like on television or in movies or portrayals or like media portrayals or even gossip. Right. Or even stupid uh, so-called history classes where um, obviously you have to go to another country to really learn about a people. Right. You can't necessarily learn about people through seeing them on TV or reading about them. But what are some of the truths that exist that you want to say are like myth busters about African culture that you kind of want to let people know about? You know what I mean? Well, one of the biggest one would with me would be the idea that Africans don't like African Americans. That bothers mm. me very well. Okay. And it's something that people some people do believe in their heart. And I be looking at them like, How can you believe this? Mm. Right? And sometimes it takes us to the conversation of, okay, you guys sold us. Yes, some Africans did participate in the slave trade. But next to that, so many more fought the invasions and mm. nobody talks about this. 
So you have this idea that the European just shows up at the shores and the African was so happy to just sell their own folks mm. for what? Mm. For what? For mirrors mm. and trinkets, really? Mm. But, and that's how they that's how they teach you. I mean, the, I, I I know that what the yeah. portrayal is. I mean, yeah. when you watch the movie Shaka Zulu, mm -hmm. you see them showing the King Shaka the mirror when he first saw himself. Right. And, you know, are you serious? Mm. Are you serious? Wow. You know, and not absolving the one that actually was part of the trade. Mm -hmm. But it's. It's incredible. Mm. Like, how would you believe that I hate myself that much? Mm. And not understanding that everybody who was taken out of Africa during the slave trade and brought here, the one who made it alive, barely made it alive with the condition that they were to survive, mm -hmm. but that also created a vacuum. Mm. Like before the slave trade, the African continent hold almost 20% of the global population. Okay. At the end of the slave trade, they said on numbers that the African population was now 9%. That's strange. That's a lot of loss. That's a lot of loss. On a huge continent. And uh. then today we wonder what happened, why they didn't develop. Excuse me, if you, if you lose that much human beings, yeah. how many centuries it takes for you to get back to where you need to be? Mm. to do the work that needs to be done. Wow. And how do you survive that? Mm. And the fact that the conversation was like s separated. Okay. We were on the continent, so yeah. we don't know what happened on the other side of the water. Okay. The people who are here, like, why didn't you come get us? How would I have came and got you? Right. Where? How? Right with which means, right? right? But you see, so like the family is cut in half and you're struggling over to survive and rebuild yourself. And you're struggling on this side, side just to survive and keep on surviving, right? Mm -hmm. So now we are here in 2008 where I can go on YouTube and I can see a lot about back home. I can be on a plane and eight hours from New York, I'm in Dakar, right? So connection is closer. I think now it is more important today to have this conversation where we understand that we are one, it's the same family, and it is incumbent on us to take all the narrative that was created and sustained by others yeah. and create these direct connections where we can have a conversation with our brothers and sisters and and mend this this yeah. divide. Yeah. So that's that is important for me. That yeah. is very important. And you do you do a lot of mending, you do a lot of supporting of women um 
African-American women, so-called African-American women, um, a lot of your, you know, Senegalese brothers and sisters, just uh, people in the community, like everywhere um, there is injustice in Detroit. I see Sadie. <laughs> I see Sadie there with her cape. I mean, it's it's not even a cape. I just... So, like an immigrant woman, but a black immigrant woman, mm -hmm. I cannot not worry about black issues, man. Mm. Because I understand very well what does it look like. Mm. Right? So yeah. I share that same plight with all other black women in this country. Mm -hmm. Right? So when their children are being killed by police, my children are being killed by police. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter what language we speak together or not. It doesn't matter if they speak only English or Ebonics and I happen to speak in English and Wolof. Mm -hmm. Right? Those are our children. Yeah. So I cannot not be involved. Mm. When it's come to gender issue, I cannot not be involved. I'm a woman in a man's world. Mm. That doesn't have no space. Mm. Right? So I understand that very well. When it comes to being an immigrant, okay, I might not be Latino, but that means the 5.4% of black immigrants in the whole system represent today 20.6% of the incarcerated in detention getting ready to be deported mm. what does it look like to you it's the same thing that 13 percent of the african pop american population represent how many almost 80 percent of the carceral population yeah same system mm. right yeah. the correlation is right there mm. so i can't i cannot not not be involved in issues that cross my path every day. Yeah. You know, I tell people, hey, I'm a black immigrant Muslim woman living in Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> what you're talking about? Right. It's what true. You're talking about? It's true. Some of my friends are gays, lesbians, and transgenders. Yeah. Can I not say something when their folks are being hunted and killed around mm. Palmer Park right? for being transgender mm -hmm. and black. Mm -hmm. I don't have to be transgender and black to care. Right. Those are my friends. Those are my sisters. Right. Right. I don't, I don't have no other choices. Right. The oppressions that America have to offer mm -hmm. is pretty much on my table every day. And I have to take a piece of it every day. Whether I want to eat, whether I like broccoli or not, it's served. Mm. This is true. Right? Mm -hmm. So being part of the community is understanding also what the community needs. It's yeah. also being able to recognize the ills of the community. Yeah. And, you know, doing what you can to fix what needs to be fixed. Raise so your voice if it have to. Speaking of fix what need to be fixed, your organization, ABISA, A-B-I-S-A, you actually, well, so you were a social worker. And I mean, just f fast forwarding, because I want to talk about your organization. You talked to me about the, I want to call it the limitations of doing um, social work within like the quote unquote, the system. 
And so you started your own organization because you could see the where the gaps were in the disparity. And so like right now, well, you have been doing this fundraiser. It's going to continue for the organization. Um, so before we talk about that part, could we talk about what a visa is, why you started it, and like what does it do exactly? So ABISA stands for the African Bureau for Immigration and Social Affairs. And it stems from me not having access to resources when I came to this country. Mm -hmm. From me trying to go to school and being told that my degree is not recognized. And I mm. have a bachelor's and you're like, well, no. Now I have to go back to school. Mm. But then if I have to go to back to school, I have only access to loan because I'm supposed to be an immigrant student. And you have all these barriers and limitation of what can I do and what I can't do on campus, mm. right? Or finding out after being, you know, a 4.0 for a whole year, that there is something that they call the Board of Governor Grant that can be given to stellar students, but nobody on campus bothered to tell me. So mm. these are things like that. And as you walk into the system and you met these barriers and there was no response, mm. then finding out that those same barriers forced other people behind before you to stop going to school, mm. right? because they didn't know where the answer was, because the school didn't have uh, an open-minded counselor who would go the extra mile to help you, you know, understand how the system works. Mm -hmm. So those frustrations led me to create the nonprofit. And immigration, same thing. Witnessing some of my friends, you know, being deported almost being deported myself for a mistake mm. on a system that I di didn't understood and having to figure out by myself with not a lot of income, how do I get this fixed? Yeah. A and the conversation led me to realize that, hey, some of the elders who was in the community before me had the same problem, didn't know how to fix it. Mm. So as we find out solution, how do you uh, ensure that the people coming be after you don't get caught into the same maze? Yeah. So the African Abyssal is there for that. It's like one, centering the narrative of African and black immigrants back into the conversation of immigration. Second is like bridging this resource and information access gap. Mm -hmm. Because how do you explain that they say African immigrants are among one of the highest educational attainment mm. within the other immigrant and uh, even some native. But at the same time, we are less likely to be homeowners after two generations. Hmm. Right. Then you have to intersect that what, what structural racism look like. Exactly. Right? So that's what the organization does. So we do a lot of... Um, litigation assistance, which is finding lawyers and connecting them with people in the community who need information, who need help, who need representations. Uh, on the educational level is advocated at the schools for extra resources to be found for um, support 
for some of the children who comes or maybe their parents don't speak the language at home and they don't have access to homework help. Mm. So how can you get the school to apply for some of the grants, Title One or Title Four, Title Three, that allow you to create um, a resource center in the school so and that the, those students can have access to extra resources mm-hmm. and be supported. Language help is a biggie. Okay. Right. So also f- advocating for that language access, language help. And in the city as Detroit with the plethora of African businesses, you know, when you sit here and hear Motor City Match, Restore, all these other small business grants, and then you look at your fellows and none of them have ever seen um, a flyer about it and you're like Mm -hmm. hey what's going on Mm -hmm. so these years of advocacy have brought us to the point where today we have um, partners we work with people such as Global Detroit or other entities who now also are pushing the narrative we're like okay we have to make sure that if Detroit is pushing small businesses. We have to make sure that all the small businesses, all the immigrant right. small businesses are part of the conversation. Right. But in all three or four or five or six, that was not the case. Mm. So by '09, when we actually started formally naming the work we do, because yeah. before we were doing it without having an right. entity. In '09, the entity was formally created. We were almost the only one talking about it. Mm. Now there is more folks in the city pushing for the same thing, and it's great because it's making the work a little bit easier. Okay. But at least the conversation now is on the table where, at least in Detroit, people can say, Well, I did not know. Right. So we passed that stage now. Okay. Now <laughs> we are at the stage where, okay, it's like, where the fundings? Right. Now that you know where is the fundings, how do we fix this? Right. Right. How do we put things on the ground to, uh, to make sure it's happened? That we are not just acknowledging the issue, but we're actually taking care of the issues and moving forward from that and building, you know, sustainable communities. Tell me about the, um, the fundraiser. Like, tell me about oh, how it's been going and the last, where, where it is yes, now. The last fundraiser we did was uh, successful. We raised $5,000, okay. and we might have to raise more. Yeah. But at the beginning, we counted to raise $5,000 to create an application that will allow us to put all the information on our app and delivery to immigrant communities mm. on a push notifications. Okay. So the app will host... Uh, a listing of lawyers or uh, law clinics that we know are reputable and do good work in the community yeah. and treat our folks with respect and dignity. Yeah. And uh, information about free services, schools, deadline, when is your deadline application for FAFSA? Okay, there is a modesty match grant, there is a NIE grant coming, it's due this day. So if you're a business owner and you have the app, you will receive the notification saying, hey, by the way, yeah. This is happening. There is a there is a conference about this. There is a small business training. There is a, a business plan, writing training, whatever is happening in the community yeah. that touches what we do. So we're gonna mm-hmm. get the information uploaded on the app and shoot it to everybody who download it. Okay. Because it's a way to ensure that our folks have direct access to the information without mm-hmm. having to 
look for it, right? Yeah. And we're that, hoping that can that be really daunting and confusing, and I imagine even more so with the language barrier. It is. I mean, not knowing where to go to get the information is already yeah. just the biggest issue. But now if the information comes to your hand, it's a whole nother conversation. Yeah. Then now the rest is on you mm-hmm. to, to like walk. Follow yes, up. to follow up. Yeah. But I don't want to hear nobody tell me that I did not know. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to avoid. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that I could call a lawyer. It's right there in your hands. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. I did not know that, that the, the Wayne School of Law was hosting an information session. No, it's right in your hands. Okay. So you might not know how to read. Your daughter know how to read. Mm-hmm. I know when you're going to get the notification, you're going to show it to your child to say, what does it say? Yeah. Right? So uh, we have That's to really try. That's really handy. Yes, we have to try. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we saw the problem, we identified it, and we decided to use technology to bridge the yeah. gap. Simple. Great idea. Simple. Because mm-hmm. we got to try. We got to start somewhere. Yeah. Because we, I understand not everybody going to come to some conversation. Some people in Detroit are afraid to drive. Well, mm. Michigan took out driver license for all in 2008. So being a resident only of m- Michigan is not enough no more to have a driver license. Now they're asking for immigrants to show their federal status, right? Mm. So if you don't have a legal, uh, um, um, a status that is active, mm. right, you can't have a driver license. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I guess, um, how do I put it? As so-called Americans, we're so removed from having to understand some of the um, challenges that immigrants um, have to go through. And there's a lot of challenges that immigrant and uh, undocumented folks have to go through to do just very simple uh, things that we don't even think about. Can so, you help us understand? So the driver license issues is also linked to the ID issue. Mm-hmm. You in Detroit, without an ID, you can't open up um, DET account. Mm. You can't open up a water bill account. Mm. So how do you rent your house? Mm. Basic stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Before 2008, you needed to prove that you were a resident of the state of Michigan. Okay. Being a resident was showing that you are actually living in the city, living in Michigan for so many, 180 days, right? Okay. And you are a resident, and with that, you can have a driver license. Mm Mm-hmm. In 2008, that was taken away. Mm. So in the conversation about security, national security, immigration, fears, Mm. it's changed that you needed to show your status, which means you need to prove that your documentation, for example, if you had a visa to stay in the U.S., your visa was still active. Hmm. So some people overstayed their visa which means they say, hey, I'm coming to visit for six months. Okay. They were given an eight-month visa to visit, 
within the eight months they like oh there is so many opportunities to build a better life i'm just gonna stay and build a better life okay and they stayed and because they stayed and didn't go back home they could not renew their visa mm. so therefore they become undocumented okay so you become undocumented on a federal level now in michigan you ca even if you have lived here 20 some years you can have a driver license hmm. and we in detroit we can't do nothing without our cars right right our children are mandated to go to school how do you take your children to school how do you go grocery shopping how do you go to work how do you do anything without a driver license in michigan it's yeah. practically impossible it's difficult right mm -hmm. but we decided that there was a subset of our population that didn't need the benefit to have a driver license because their documentation expired at the federal level mm. because they traveled to the u.s and found opportunities that they thought would make their life easier they had dreams for their children that they wanted to grow up here and go to good schools and make money and because they made that choice to say, hey, there is a better opportunity for my family here. I'm right. gonna settle here and work hard to make this opportunity happen. Because maybe in my country of origin, there is war. Maybe because the economy is not that good and I would never be able to send my children to school. Right. You know, so many other reasons why people move from one state to another. Why you will quit a job and say, hey, I'm going to go take this as a job because it's paying me better. And right. I can afford buying a, a newer car. I can afford buying a bigger house. Yeah. Quality of life issues. And because of that, we punished them. Mm. Because they said, well, I wanted to give better to my family and my children. Mm. We in Michigan punished them by telling them, oh no, driver license is a benefit mm. of people who are documented. Mm. Which means who have a valid visa, an mm -hmm. active visa. Mm -hmm. So the impact of that bringing it close to home. Mm -hmm. When I walked in here today, I was very upset. I'm still very upset. Mm -hmm. My friend is missing mm. in the system. Mm. Three weeks ago, he was stopped and incarcerated. Since 2011, he had been going to ICE check-ins. In 2011, mm -hmm. he was caught driving from New York to Detroit without a license. Mm -hmm. Immigration was called and his case was opened back up, okay. right? Mm -hmm. And he was to report to ICE enforcement on a monthly basis. And he had been reporting on a monthly basis. Up until three weeks ago, he went to his ICE check-in and they, they incarcerated him. For the last three weeks, every Tuesday, I have been going to St. Clair County Jail to visit him. Mm. Today, I drove all the way to St. Clair County Jail to get the news that he is not there no more. So since this afternoon at six, I have been calling all the lawyers, all the folks who have been helping in his case to find out where he is. But the fear that they are right now maybe putting him on a plane to Senegal is real. Mm. Then somebody can say, okay, why? What's the problem, <laughs> right?
Right. Yeah. What's the problem? The problem is that he spent 29 years in the U.S. Wow. 29 years wow. in the U.S. He have not been home for the last 29 years. He don't owe nothing. He don't have a house to his name. He don't have a room to his name. He don't have an apartment to his name. He mm. don't have nothing. Since 2003, he have been living in Detroit Metro. Okay. All his children are born here. Oh. The oldest one is 16. The youngest one is three. Mm-hmm. They don't know nothing but their father working hard, putting food on the table, getting them an iPad, an iPhone, mm. Jordans, going to school, clothes for Eid, the TV, everything that any other child born yeah. here look for. Right, right. Talking about, you know, where you're going to go to high school, you want to be a doctor, you want to be a, a nurse, what do you want to be, how are you going to get there? All what they know is their father working two jobs, mm. driving a driving a cab and working in a bakery, but to get them whatever they need. He never eat, he never spent a penny from the federal government. Didn't get weak for his children, didn't have food stamp, nothing. Nothing. No mm. insurance, no nothing. Mm. Never depended on any of the social benefit that his children could have have access to. He was like, no, I work hard for this. Mm. And today he is on his way for being deported. Mm. And I have to get out of here. That's why I was asking you at what time I can leave because <laughs> I have to go to the family right. and give them the news, oh. right? And face his daughter's mm that now are facing the possibility of being evicted pretty soon because Mm. he was the main breadwinner. Oh my goodness. Last week when I was telling to the mother, you know, maybe you need to call your social worker, I was shocked when she was like, who? Mm. So you don't have a caseworker? No. (coughs) So this is a family who was not in poverty. Right. But that is going to be homeless. Uh. Because we as the society took out driver license for all. Mm. With him having a driver license when he was stopped in 2011, it would not have triggered a deportation process. Mm. Not having a driver license brought us here today. Mm. More than 70% of the African immigrant being deported out of Metro Detroit as stopped for a traffic violation. Mm. Most of the time it's because they got they run a stop sign or whatever else that all of us do. They're speeding, whatever. Mm-hmm. And when they ask for their driver license, they can't provide any. I mean, yeah, that's like the average Detroiter. Yeah. You know. But me and you yeah. get to ride dirty, but our family don't have to pay yeah. uh, this higher price. Right? right. Maybe my car is going to be impounded and I will have to cry about who's going to pick me up here right. and there. Mm-hmm. And how long I'm going to be like, duh, for real. Mm-hmm. But having your mom or your dad snatched away from you mm. for riding dirty. Mm. Really? Yeah. Oh, my God. So you have to, like, get in touch with him. 
I don't know. I. You don't know. I can't get in touch with him. Ugh. Because I don't call you and say, we're taking him away. Ugh. We might hear from him once he hits Senegal. Okay. And then we'll have to figure out where right. to go. Like, right. you taking him to Senegal, we can even call home to let them know that he's coming. He's going to make it to Senegal with nothing. Yeah, so have you ever um, talked? So you said you had other people that have been deported. Yeah. So have you talked to them once they get? Oh, yeah. So... In um, February, when I was home, I speak with another another gentleman that was default, deported from Detroit, and I went to see him at a home. And uh, he hides. His father was asking me to help because he come home after 10 years, and um, things move fast in Senegal, so he don't know where to go. He is ashamed of the way that he was deported and trying to get back to the regular life in Senegal is <laughs> is a maze for him. Mm. So now he has to go through a whole nother transitional period, mm-hmm. right? To get back to, okay, where do I, how do I get my license? my driver license turn into a Senegalese driver license. Mm. The 10 years, you know, skills again here, how do I transfer it into the Senegalese workforce? Mm. All those are questions that they don't have answer for. And the family is as lost as they are, Mm. right? So he is young, and when I went to Senegal, I was like, you young, you 33, you 34, you can make it. Yeah. Katim is 56. Hmm. Right. So when he goes back, is there so-called a place for him? No. Uh. I know there is no place for him because when he got caught and I tried to contact the family in Senegal, his father died, his mm. brothers and sisters are old men with their wives and kids, and they're like, what do you mean he's coming home? Where he going to sleep? And I'm mm. like, I don't know. Like, mm. literally. Yeah. The family is like, uh, we need to talk and figure out who can take him in. Mm. Like literally. Wow. Because he invested all his time and money in this country mm. to build a life for himself and his family. Mm. Wow. Is there an option for his family that's here to go there? What are they going to do you? At 16 years old, you don't read and write French. How are you going go to go to high school in Senegal? Mm. Right. There is private school that costs 9000 10000 $12,000 a year. Wow. How are he going to pay for that? He was not able to pay for that here. Mm. Wow. And these are hardships that we talk about all the time. What you do with the children? 
Mm-hmm. They are born and raised. They speak English. They don't mm. read and write French. You're going to do what? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. All what they know about Senegal is what they see on the TV, like what you see on the TV. Right. Right. So now you got or you're going to help him kind of navigate all that. First of all, I have to find him. First of right. all, I need to know between this afternoon three and now and later tonight, where are you? Because mm. you're not in jail no more. They took you out of there. Mm. But there was no courtesy call to let us know, hey, we're deporting him. So mm. I don't even know if he's in a plane. Mm. So I can't even call Senegal in a frenzy and tell them, drive three hours to the airport mm. and wait for the guy that... Maybe he's getting there tonight, maybe tomorrow at 5 a.m. Mm. I don't really know because I did not bother to call me and tell me, hey, we're deporting him. Mm. I did not have the time to take his credit card, his bank card, nothing. So everything is under his name. His wife and children are left with nothing. Mm. The bills have to be paid and because everything was under his name, what do we do? Mm. She can't go nowhere. She can change the electricity to her name. She can do nothing else because they, they're going to ask her, who are you? Mm. Are you Katim Toure? She's going to go to the bank. They're not going to give her the money that he have in his bank account. Mm. And I have, you know, I have to deport him, but they leave me with the work of facing his family and Trying to figure it all out. And having to deal with the pain. Mm-hmm. And having no answers for them. Mm. How do I tell to these children, no, your father is not a criminal. It's just the system that is bad. It doesn't make no sense to them. Mm. So you make out of the dad something that he is not. Mm. Wow. So now I'm gonna have a 16 years old that was dreaming to go to college with the support of his father. Now she gonna do what? She gonna figure out maybe how to go braid on a weekend to help her mom sustain the family. Yeah. This is what he spent 29 years for. This is what we say is acceptable for a certain category of of American children. Mm. because they were born from parents that was immigrant. So mm. the way this, the immigration system works is saying to these American children, you're not worthy enough for American dreams because your parents are immigrant. Mm. Right. Wow. And he's like one person. And this is like... Every day. Every day. Because why are we fighting for this? Another brother was picked up th- last week. Today mm. when I went to ICE in this morning to drop some letters for, um, of support for this case, there was two other African brothers who came in there to check in. And you can, you can see the stress. Mm. So there are those that you never hear about until they make it home. 
Mm. And there are those that you hear about, but it's already too late to do something about it. But it's happening all the time. Yes, of course, it doesn't make it the news like uh, all other cases we have seen lately. Yeah. But that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And so, like, just for clarity, we've got... There's a green card. Mm -hmm. Then there's a visa. Yeah. Then there's, like, two or three types of visa. Oh, oh, so many types of them. Because the student visa, you come with the F1 and... It's very restrictive, and when you finish graduating, they expect you to go home. Mm. They don't expect you to stay it's because the student visa disposition says that you come to go to school. Okay. When you graduate, you finish, you have a master's, and all these opportunities that are offered to you, noble, bye, you can go home. Wow. I. When you come with a tourist visa to visit and discover the USA, well, just do that. Spend your money, discover the USA for how many long we allowed you to stay three months, six months. But then after that, go. Don't mm. dream about the opportunities of a better life while you're on a tourist visa, right? Mm. When you are a seasonal worker, same thing. Come here, labor hard, be paid less than $9 an hour in very difficult situation. But when you finish that season of laboring for us and our product that we're going to eat and enjoy, shoo, till Mm. next season. Okay. So those are the conversations that the American Mm -hmm. immigration system have. When you are a refugee, when you're going to come here, claim asylum because you are in dire need of asylum, you have only one year to figure out how your claim going to go. If you don't, it's too late for you to claim anything and to Mm. get asylums. Mm. And now you don't even need to claim asylums because with what has been happening these, these weeks with people coming crossing the border, going through all these horrendous things, and they come to the border and they say, hey, I want to claim asylum or I want to claim refugee status because of I'm running away from these horrendous things happening in my country. No, you are going to be persecuted for crossing this line illegally. And by the way, if you had a child, we're just going to separate you from your child. Mm. Why are you being prosecuted? Mm. Oh my god. And is there like another status or other types of statuses? You know, besides like the visa and besides the green card? No. Nope. So it's just asylum or Yeah, you have to have some type of visa, a non-immigrant visa or immigrant visa. If you are on an immigrant visa, then you get to adjust your status and become a legal permanent resident, which is the green card. Okay. If you come with a non-immigrant visa, that means you don't have the intention to settle in the U.S. So you came for a very limited time, whatever the term of that visa is, and whatever that is when it's over with, you got to go back home. So you have those two types of 
statuses the non-immigrant visas and the immigrant visas the immigrant visas are the one who gonna let you to have a green card and from having a green card you get to stay here and further down the line apply for residency and become a citizenship a citizen yeah. if you don't have an immigrant visa you have a non-immigrant visa that is limited so it can be an immigrant visa for for three months, like a tourist visa or six months, mm -hmm. to a non-immigrant visa like students for four or five years when you finish your studies, or some others, you know, classification that allows you to stay here on longer. But at the term of those visa, whatever the term is, you are expected to just pack your stuff and go home. And um, how did you get a? Uh, immigrant visa. That's the hardest thing, especially for Africans. That's the mm. hardest thing. You apply for it, but you have to go through all these hoops and loops and prove so many stuff and spend so much money. Mm. This is the hardest one. So it's like a hustle, basically. Oh, a real one. And that costs you a lot of money. Wow. And all that money, if they deny you your visa, is not given back to you. Oh, okay. So how does... In the conversation about DACA, how does that play into the African experience here in America? Oh, DACA is pretty much real because we have a lot of students who benefited from DACA, who actually their parents, like all the other parents, came here with them on a tourist visa and stayed. Mm. And these children was two, one was babies. They grow up here. They don't know, know nothing else but this country. And when they finish high school, find out that they were undocumented. Mm. The story isn't the same. Mm. So has DACA been something that has benefited the African oh, yes, community in your definitely. Okay. Yeah. The okay. one who was eligible for it benefited from it. And today they are in limbo like all other DACA members. Mm. So, so even though people were born here, lived here, they're still kind of up in the air, like what could happen to them. Well, most of the DACA people was actually raised here. Yeah. So they came here infants, like okay. babies or toddlers. Yeah. They don't know nothing else but the USA. Yeah. They might as well be born here. They don't this know nothing so else but the US. Uh. And, and it's crazy because <laughs> like the US constantly, you know, the narrative is that this is the place to be that welcomes you. Oh, yeah. You Till know, today, we're you know America's America is like so-called like the most humane place you could go, right? Like for asylum, or it's the most welcoming, or it's the most America open. sells itself. It sells itself on that as being the most welcoming. Is yeah. it now? Mm. It's not now. It's not. Wow. But that's how it's market itself, definitely. So mm. on a glossy paper, yes, if you if marketing gets you, definitely. Yeah. Mm. Oh but that's not God. the that's not the reality on the ground. Mm. That's not the reality on the ground. And we you know, and conversation have taken up a notch 
with this presidency. Okay. Let's talk about the Women's March. <laughs> this guy. So, yeah, let's talk about the Women's March. Like, um, in case people don't know, there was this huge uh, women's convention that was a follow-up to uh, a gathering, if you will, or march protest that happened in January of 2017. And so there was a meeting and then there was a convening. So the um, organizers of uh, the Women's March um, decided that they wanted to choose Detroit to come to in October of 2017. They um, had different meetings uh, throughout the time. So we're talking about uh, Linda Sarsour, Tamika Mallory, and um, Carmen Perez. And uh, there was a local host committee. So there's a Michigan Women's March and, you know, on and on. And um, I want to say August, possibly, you got brought in. So talk about your um, how you got brought into the Women's March or how you found out about it and how you ended up being one of the leaders here in Detroit for this really huge uh, convening. Well, it was a false start for me mm-hmm. because at the beginning, I think it was January or February earlier mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that year, there was an email that was sent to a lot of organizers that saying that the march was going to come to Michigan and they wanted to meet with local organizers to get Detroit ready. And we were like, yay. <laughs> then didn't hear nothing until one day I met with one of the sisters who was like, it was like maybe in April. She's like, where have you been? Like, what you talking about? She said, we have been having this meeting with the organizers. I have not seen you. Well, you, I was not invited. Well, I thought your name was on the list at the beginning. Yes, certainly I received an email that was forwarded to me. But if you have been to one or two meetings and you didn't see me, why didn't you call me? Mm. So weaving it in trying to figure out what was happening august came about and it between between you and elder leslie that i get this message saying hey uh linda is going to be into being town we need you to be at this meeting is important about this woman march organizing it was i remember on a thursday mm-hmm. and i had a class right. and i'm like i can't come i really mm-hmm. want to be there and but i can't be there i'm just finding out now the meeting is going to be in two hours yeah there is no way i'm going to make it to the meeting and i was pissed because i was like how you guys gonna have this meeting make all this decision and what is the representation of african immigrants in all this conversation right then from that point on i missed that meeting but then the follow-up meeting with the local host committee, Elder Leslie confirmed with me the date and time, and I showed up at the meeting, and here we are. Yeah. In the midst of getting ready to receive millions of people in Detroit yeah. within two, three months, and trying to figure out what the programming going to look like, who have a say, and so who going to be represented and how. And within the bigger, na- the bigger narrative of people trying to 
um, counter the woman march or yeah. trying to counter Linda Sosur herself as a, as a Muslim Palestinian woman. So a lot of things in the air, a lot of stress. Yeah. It was so stressful. <laughs> I remember, like, I came in, what, like, two weeks? Maybe three weeks. Two or three weeks before that, trying to navigate the whole thing. It was so stressful. It was a lot. It was a lot. It was a lot. And, you know, like I said, for me, it was a false start, but it was... um. It was a great experience, like having to understand how organizing work, yeah. having to try all those different concepts of what organizing is supposed to look like, yeah. having to say, hey, hey, you cannot come in a city and do certain stuff a certain way. The city have stuff that they need to handle. This is Detroit. There is yeah. a lot being happening in Detroit. There's a lot of work happening in Detroit. Yeah. How this work's gonna make it to this national table, mm-hmm. right? And how this pre- representation gonna happen. And it was important to stay and get your voice heard. And I think that's all what we did. Yeah. And it was as stressful as it can be, but people that came to the Women March would not have known. It was right. a, it was a great a great event. I yeah. mean, it turned out yeah. turnout was great. Yeah. The conversation that was held was great. I mean, people pulled out a lot of work, mm-hmm. and I always say shout out to Katie. Yeah, because I used to look at that love. Katie, Katie went through a lot with all the screaming and the hollering she and. She was being the bridge between the local committee trying to understand what we need, what we were talking about, but also having to navigate between that and the need of the national organizers and still trying to make sure that this goes the right way and stay on track. Yeah. Oh, she did a hell of a job. Yeah, she did a great job. She was so... um, I didn't want to be in her seat. She was so focused and she she learned like she she really um was intentional about learning you know what i mean i didn't want i didn't want to be in her seat and you know (laughs) but it it was it was very difficult a very difficult seat that you know for that i always say like respect you have to respect to acknowledge women when they really like put themselves in those uncomfortable situations. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, you know, shout out to to, to local organizers for standing yeah. their ground. Mm-hmm. Like my mom, my Monica Lewis Patrick, oh, Aldo yeah. Leslie, I yeah. mean Didi Coleman, Pastor Didi Coleman and yeah. everybody else who was involved. Um Tatiana yeah. Grant. Mm-hmm. My God. Um Tiffany. Yeah. Right, then you know, Phoebe, all the other ladies, all Nicole. Awesome. Yeah. yeah, Nicole, Janice Poindexter, mm-hmm. everybody who came in and was like, Hey, this is ours, we also part of this movement, right? And this is Detroit, and Detroit issue cannot be left on the wayside. Mm-hmm. It was out. beautiful, it was beautiful. And you know what? Can you talk about a little bit? Um, cause one thing that, um, is really precious about Detroit is we sit on this really important vortex. Um, it's on water. 
It is the site of the um, the genocide, you mm. know, uh, in in one aspect, and um, and the bridge to freedom in another aspect. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the body of water that uh, sits between Canada and um, and the United States. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had a conversation about how many souls. Uh, are still there you know how many souls didn't make it and even a conversation about that there's actually um, two statues one that sits on the Detroit side and one that sits on the um, Canadian side they're across from each other and it's um, a family or a group of people um, that are in Detroit and they're looking towards Canada and when you go over to the Canadian side there that statue is the same group of people facing uh, the United States, but they're, or maybe it faces towards the other way, but it's missing a person to signify the people that didn't make it across. And um, you organized this really super powerful spiritual um, experience that actually opened the conference and welcomed our ancestors, the spiritual energy, and ask permission. And um, you brought us that connection to um, to our our roots, you know, and like who we are. And I feel that that was a really, really, really important um, part of the conference that a lot of people didn't get to see, but the people who were there were really impacted by it. And I wanted you to, whatever you can, talk about it because some of it is sacred but whatever you can say about that piece well as we were in the midst of organizing and getting ready to uh, to receive all these people in Cobo Hall the first thing that I was thinking was I keep telling elderly how do you ensure that all spirits are okay mm-hmm. because in African tradition you don't do nothing without appeasing the spirit first mm-hmm. and Cobo Hall is a huge mm-hmm. and everybody that's going to come in there have themselves and their spirit and the spirit of their spirit together mm-hmm. and the idea was how do you ensure that everything flows smoothly mm. without having a clash mm. and you cannot do that without paying homage and showing respect to the ancestors and understanding the land that we stay in and the history and we were also in the midst of the water fight and mm-hmm. we are in the, in the body of water mm. it kept just coming back so we had this conversation with the elders, Mom Monica, Lewis Patrick, Elder Leslie, and they were like, definitely, we, we have to do this. So we imagined a ceremony that would actually do only that. Mm-hmm. And Miss Lisa was invited, mm-hmm. who is from one of the native, tri- native tribe from here. And uh, she opened it up with her traditional ceremony 
in the land of her ancestors, mm-hmm. right? Then we did the African libations, mm-hmm. right? Then everybody else added into their prayers and we asked for the permission to receive all our guests from all over the world mm-hmm. into this space, onto these sacred lands, into this sacred water, while we still, the water protectors are still fighting. We connected the dot with our humanity at the shore mm. looking up to Canada where so many of our ancestors try to go mm-hmm. for solace and liberty and so many of our newcomers are still trying to reach mm. Canada for the immigration purposes to be safe mm. so the idea of this ongoing trail born from the underground railroad is mm. still happening yeah. and it was a beautiful ceremony. Yeah. Two to three hundred people came and yeah. they came from all part of the city. Yeah. And they walked up to the water and we chanted, we prayed. Carmen was there. Yeah. She came Shout down. Shout out to Carmen Perez. Yeah. Yeah. She came. She came down. And yeah. it was no perfect way to open up than that. Yeah. Because I think it's always important to remember that we are not whole without spirituality. Mm. That's how we do things in Detroit. Yeah. <laughs> I thought what was powerful too um, was your leadership in, uh, in that aspect and also saying, listen, we're not going, you're not going to be able to just come here and not, you know, acknowledge or talk about the African immigrant struggle. Like, I appreciated that. Well, on a national level, when we talked about the Women March, that aspect was not there at the beginning. Mm. A lot of other things was highlighted. Mm. The plight of African immigrant or black immigrant was not highlighted. Mm. I'm a woman. Yeah. I'm an African woman. I'm mm. an African woman, immigrant woman. Mm-hmm. I'm an organizer in this city. I need to have a space also within the woman march. Right. It's true. And that was my space. That is my space. That's where I stand. Right. Exactly. And that conversation could not go without me bringing it up. Right. And I think it's always important when we are part of a huge national coalitions to understand that we do have a role and that it's not always about the bigger agenda Mm -hmm. because if we are fighting against oppression if we are fighting to say hey there are a group of people who have always been oppressed and not given a voice what is it to turn around and find some of them and still don't give them a voice? That doesn't make no sense. Yeah. So as women, if we are really about ensuring that each other's well-being is taken care of, we need to be able to uplift each other's voice. Yeah. And it was important for me to be in this city to bring that voice in the table and make sure that it was heard intentionally or not intentional it had to be heard right and i needed it to be intentional actually yeah Yeah. and we learned a lot you know what i'm saying yeah so let's go to your campaign (laughs) 
you're running for um, state representative, right? Yes. And which district? District 8. And can you tell us about um, just the entire campaign, the experience, being a candidate? Um, because I think um, this particular election, we have a lot of different um, non-traditional sort of candidates, meaning you guys don't come out of like the machine. You know, there are certain families and certain communities here that kind of churn out um, the political leaders on the local level and so on. And um, you've been here, you're a Detroiter, you've been in the community, you've been, you know, fighting, struggling, um, doing social work, you know, uh, you're a social justice warrior, um, and so you're in the streets, so you know the people, you know the community, and um, it wasn't that you have a huge ego and was like, I'm going to be your political leader. It was like people came to you and were like, you got to run. This is what you got to do. So I'm just wondering, can you speak to your candidacy? Um, we could talk about your platform as well, what you stand for. Um, and just, you know, uh, what you're going to bring to the table, but also your experience as a candidate. <laughs> I know that's a lot, but. <laughs> so I did not decide to run until late in the game. Mm -hmm. I don't like politics, never liked it. Voted since I was able to vote, knocked at doors. I was in Kalamazoo when we were um, when Ban the Box was on the on their ballot. Mm. I knocked at the door for that, right? Went to Flint a couple of times for the water issues. Knock at door more in all these other campaigns for healthcare for all for the ACA and other issues, mass incarceration problems mm. that I think was important because I think that's what it means to be a citizen, mm. period. Mm -hmm. I did not intend to run for office. Mm -hmm. Even though in my line of work as an immigrant rights advocacy organizer, it is very frustrating when legislation is the only things that is on your way. Mm. So, you know, you go to land saying you beg, you take people in, in D.C., you know, to say, hey, legislatures, look at these folks. We need the DREAM Act. We need you guys to keep the TEPS going and things like that. So did so many of those up until January, January 2018. Mm. Um, in January 2018, President Trump came out and said that he was tired of having immigrants from shithole country come to this country. Mm. Why can't they have immigrants from Norway? Mm. Really? I mm. live in Detroit. I was evicted from my house. I live on Robson and Shalfant. Mm -hmm. There is 12 abandoned houses in my street. Mm. 
between Shalfont and Eton is a black. Hmm. I sit between two abandoned houses. Every other day, I'm running to ensure that my water is not cut off. Mm. How many times my electricity was shut off and we had to stay in the home with no electricity. Mm. I don't have access to Medicaid or Medicare. My daughter is a heart patient. There is no schools around where I live. I live on a food desert. There is no mm-hmm. grocery stores around me. I drive 20 minutes away from where I am to find a suitable grocery stores. Mm-hmm. But you're going to tell me that because I come from a shithole country, you're tired of seeing my face. Mm. But I'm living right here in Detroit in shithole conditions. Really? Mm. Really? Mm. I decided to run for office. Okay. I was like, no, enough is enough. Maybe if there is so many other folks from shithole control sitting in position where they make legislation, maybe at that time we can have on a whole nother different conversation in the United States. Mm. But maybe we have to start by our here, by our states. Because 2016, we turned Republican, right? Mm-hmm. We lost by 10,000 votes, yeah. right? Yeah. We did that. Mm. So that was me saying I'm tired of being tired. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired of this. Right. This narrative, this notions that Americanness is whiteness, this notion that there is a group of people who don't deserve nothing good. Mm. Not only I'm going to create the condition of poverty and uh, ensure that they are locked into those conditions of poverty, but on the top of that, I'm going uh, to just tell them that they, they're just dispensable. Mm. Wow. So here we are <laughs> running in the 8th district, one of the most diverse districts, I would say, when you look at the, the, the social economical levels. You have mm-hmm. some people who are very well set in our district and some people who live under $10,000 a year, right? Mm-hmm. So you have those two extremes in the same district. You have some neighborhoods that il fait bon vivre, like you drive into the neighborhood, you know, this is life. Yeah, It looks good, it smells good, it's yeah. clean, it's green, it's, oh my God, that's life. Yeah. And you drive into the war zone and mm-hmm. they are only that. Yeah. And we are eight minutes away from each other. Yeah. That's the reality of of that district, but also a district that is very vibrant and very active mm. because there is so many community organizations and associations and every association and every block club is working hard to keep that, that block alive, mm. regardless of, of how little they have or how much they seem to have. Everybody is very involved, is ensuring that their neighborhood is a place where it's a good living will fait bon vivre so i jump into the race and uh, my 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 <laughs> <laughs> so it's like discovering how much money need to go in campaign and election and you're like why do i have to spend twenty thousand dollars for mailers mm. <laughs> but that's the reality 
It's like if you don't make these six to eight contact voters, then your chances to be known, recognized, and mm. your voice to be out there is limited. Mm-hmm. So you need to print all these paperwork and mm-hmm. send them and it costs money and you're like mm-hmm. excuse me i'm one of the poorest pop- right. people in the city how do you run a campaign and then you know yeah this is why people who have their skin in the game don't run for office it's expensive to run for office mm. like how did they get to do is it a new way to to redline people out of public service mm. that's how i felt but we in there we in there we make two thousand cards we knock at doors when the cards finish we raise enough to make another two thousand mm-hmm. <laughs> so we're going like stop by stop and knocking at doors i'm out there every day mm. trying so you need a we need a printing sponsor we need a printing sponsor. I need yeah. food on the ground. I need all these you universities. Need an army. I need an army at those mm-hmm. doors. Um, but you, know. you have like great support. I want to say that um, you need more support. But the support, the people that um, that I've seen, they're very strong at the table. Like you know, the young people, the young ladies uh, that believe in you. And I think that's really important for people to understand that you have people who believe in you strongly. Yeah. I mean, definitely. Like I said, you know, I'm not running it as an immigrant because that's not what it is about. When your water is being shut off, they know they don't go down the line mm-hmm. and say, well, we're going to shut off the immigrant. And no, no, no. everybody is water. That doesn't make a certain amount of money that is struggling mm. water is being shut off. Mm. So when we can't pay our car insurance in the city, it's not only me. It's yeah. me who don't make the money I should be making. But it's also the elder that is living in Rosedale Park who have to be like, what am I going to do? Am I paying my home insurance or am I paying my car insurance? Mm-hmm. So that's something that even though I live on Robertson and it's it's a war zone, I still share the same concern as the you know my elder who is in Grandma Rosedale. Because when I knock at their doors, that's the first concern they have, mm. right? They talk about their insurance, the home insurance, the car insurance. Then they talk about healthcare. Mm. Yeah. And that is also my concern because I can't afford healthcare and I have a child who had a heart surgery at six months age and mm. need support and need follow-up. And we don't make the doctor visit because it's too expensive. So mm. when I sit on those porch and talk to these elders, we're talking the same language, yeah. right? Their concern is in my concern. Yeah. Education is number one. My daughter is 13, have to go to high school. And we're fighting over how we're going to get to to Castec or Renaissance mm-hmm. because those are the best public schools we have for the whole city of Detroit. Mm. How, d- how did we end up here? that we can't offer public, good quality public education in my neighborhood, that mm-hmm. I have to sit in front of Cooley High School, majestic, beautiful building, empty, mm. and unsafe and insecure because two weeks ago they find a body of a lady right next door to us, mm. right? 
So mm. I, I get it. I understand what it is yeah. to struggle in this city, to struggle in this neighborhood, to share the same complaint, to drive your car, and the road is bumpy that you're wondering where you're from. But, you know, they're talking about shithole country. But mm. I can drive from Dakar to my village and not hit a bump on the road. Wow. Right? But I cannot drive from Hubble Finkel to Wyoming and get into the lodge without dodging, you know, all kind of potholes and having my car vibrate because I I'm know. like, I'm jumping all yeah. the way down. Yeah. And then I have Mr. 45 talking about, I don't need to be here. He's tired of seeing people like me. Mm. Really? Wow. So for me, it's like, how do we bridge those communities? How do we go to Lansing and bring these voices up there? Yeah. Because this is the reality that I need them to fix, that I have been entrusting them to fix for the last 15 years. And they have not, be, they have not made that much progress that I can be proud of. Mm. They have not given me yet a slack. They didn't cut me no slack. I have not been breathing yet. Or contraire, at the contrary, I have been sinking into poverty between 2006 and now mm. with a master's degree. Mm. So when are we going to stop making those conditions for people like me and like others to benefit from the hard work? Yeah. Because nobody works harder than a Detroiter. Nobody hustles harder than a Detroiter. I know what it is. Right. When you talk about grit, come to Detroit. Yeah. And I think, you know, everybody have the opportunity to live, you know, with dignity. And I believe that if we set the right set of circumstances, everybody can soar together. It's not about taking from the rich to the poor. No, it's about making sure the people who, who are where they are can sustain themselves and keep on moving forward. Hmm. So, you know, we, in, my, in my platform, we talk about that. We talk about, you know, getting the minimum wage at $15. Okay. It's not a living wage, but it's a... <laughs> It's yeah. a way to have, yeah, right, and um, you know everything else. Good educations, having access to healthcare, of course, insurance, right, mm -hmm. and all other things that set communities for them to move forward. Right. So you know, good and reliable transportation. Mm -hmm. If I have access to good reliable transportation, if I don't have a car, I can still hop on a bus and make it in time of work. Yeah. But if my employer have to worry if I'm going to make it there in time, you think they're going to hire me? No. Mm -mm. Regardless of how much degree and skills and knowledge I have, they're going to hesitate to hire me. Mm -hmm. So there is those small fix that need to be fixed that I believe we can fix with the right set of circumstances, laws, and sponsorship to yeah. really ensure that these communities continue to sustain themselves mm. to what they need to be anyway. People mm. work too hard in this city uh, not to have the minimum access to a comfortable way of life. Yeah. Right. No, it's true. It's so true. So, um, I mean, do you have uh, anything else? Because we're going to wrap up. But do you have um, anything else that you want people to um, hold on to or take away from um, understanding, uh, you know, the in 
entire immigrant struggle and like what do you actually need for a visa and what do you need for your campaign for my campaign i need a lot of financial support mm-hmm. and a lot of people that come and volunteer there's afternoon there's saturday and sunday and help me knock at these doors and host this community conversation to better you know spread my message mm-hmm. that's basically it for abisa or Yeah, for Abisa, we're going to say also support into the Springboard to Excellence program that we have. We're always looking for interns and volunteers to come support with the work we do, help us help communities understand better what their rights are, where they can, can have access to resources. So if you have a, a resource, give it to us bring it our way if you holding community conversation let us know anything that you think is good to help integrate others to the community let us know and we'll make sure that we spread the conversation and we continue building building bridges and uh, sustaining these uh, these families that need help mm. because they deserve to be helped and In a general sense, what I want us to remember about immigration is to remember about our humanity. Mm. As we speak, there is three families, a Ghanaian family that is um, holding sanctuary in a Methodist church. Mm. There is an Albanian family that is right now in sanctuary in another church. Right, and we have an Arab woman that is right now in sanctuary in a whole other church, and all these three people share one story of immigrating here, losing their status, and today being in the verge of being deported. Mm. And we have these churches who stepped in and are giving them sanctuary, mm. right. The old Arab woman, she is so old. We call her Auntie Amina. That we don't uh, even understand why she's being deported mm. at 80 something years old. Mm. The Albanian couple, the wife is so sick. The husband has to do everything for her. But you're about to deport the only person who clean, feed, clothes, take care of her. Why she can't do nothing for herself. Mm. Right? Where is our humanity? How are we okay that these conversations are happening over and over again and we're still okay with it happening? Mm. And I know we're not dumb. Yeah. So I know we understand very well that there is nothing criminal into these three, four, five cases that I have talked to you about. Mm. But we choose to keep the one criminal that we have ever heard about and paint the whole immigrant with that one brush and say they are not worthy to be in here and we okay with them being persecuted. Mm. It's about our humanity. If we snatch babies away from their parents at the border or mm. we snatch cut him away from his family that is under 21 years old and still need him or yeah. we decide to deport um, Mr. Garcia 
that had lived here all his life, yeah. right? Or we decide that Auntie Amina, who is 80-something years old, need to be sent back to whatever country in Arabia that she comes from because she she don't deserve to be here, regardless of raising her children here, being here her, all her life, being 80. She's not going to be on the street mugging nobody. Mm. What are we scared of? Mm. Why are we taking this Albanian husband away from his wife that needs him and it's not like we are gonna ensure that somebody gonna be in the house and taking care of his wife needs that is sick and important yes what are we saying so for mm. me in the immigration conversation it's about our own humanity and we have to make the choice if we are human beings that yeah. have a humanity or if we actually decided to forfeit our humanity. Therefore, we don't need to have a conversation about why deportation is happening. We can let it go rampant. Mm. But if we call ourselves human and we have a slightly claim on being human beings, decent folks, we mm -hmm. need to act like it. Because yeah. right now we're not. Right. At so all. So how can um, people get in touch with you, like your website, your email, and all your social media? Oh, my website for the campaign is votefosady.com. How do you spell that? V-O-T-E number four, S-E-Y-D-I. So you can check me out. You can fill in the join the movement forum and I'll get the email and I'll call you back. And as you can click the donate button <laughs> mm -hmm. and donate to the campaign. That's a good one. Yes. Click the donate button. Click the donate button and give me $5 or a thousand, however you want, yeah. or anything in the, <laughs> in the mm -hmm. between, in the middle. Um, for the immigration work, look out Abyssa. A-B-I-S-A on Facebook and mm -hmm. get LinkedIn, like our page, send me messages and see the work we do and come help if you have an hour a week, two hours a week. We are always happy to have volunteers. There is always something to do. Yeah. On Monday evening, come take dance class with me at the Where? Namdi Gallery. At Namdi Gallery? <laughs> yes, 6.30 to 8. I'm still teaching African dance, so of you can course. come and jam and jump and sweat and uh, talk social justices, because we always do. Okay. <laughs> class. That's what's up. Yes. So you heard it here that Sadie Saar um, finally got her on the show. I'm glad she was able to do it today. She's really super busy um, a lot of the time. And... Um, but she made time and she makes time. So that shows like she's in these streets, like super heavy. So um, we love Sadie. We want to bring you back because um, the campaign isn't until uh, November. No, the primary is Primaries in August. are August 7. Go vote. Yeah, got to vote primary. The primary is very important. We yeah. need to flip this house. We need a blue wave. Go vote. So Go vote for the person. want to bring you back think. before yes. that. Yeah. Maybe on the Detroit is different with Kari. Um, we're going to uh, do like a candidate forum so you get a chance to uh, talk a little bit more. Um, but thanks for coming, spending oh, time. You, you know, I know you got to uh, go deal with whatever's going on um, right now, as well as your daughter. 
uh, need you to make sure that uh, she did her homework. No, your daughter is uh, on the trip. She's on her eighth grade trip. I need to go home and eat because we passed the time of breaking fast. That's right. (laughs) Everyone, shouts out to everyone that is um, uh, practicing Ramadan or if you uh, are just fasting because you're honoring that other people are practicing Ramadan. So, um, yeah, it's time to go eat and uh, get one of these iftars in. So, uh, yeah, Piper Carter Podcast on Detroit is Different. We've been here with Sadie Sar. We really appreciate you. We love you. Salam alaikum. Alaikum salam. Peace. Thank you. Okay, I got to close this down. Where do you go? Oh, my God. That was good. I know it was two hours, but. Let me tell them I that down. Let me see. Mamma mia. Thank you for um, taking the time. Appreciate you, Sadie. Oh, thank you. I know you got stuff to do, places to go. Yes, I was supposed to go present at uh, this recent park. Oh, right, 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 at the Iftar. Yes. I know, I'm like, ah. I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I'm just putting on the shoe. Let me tell Okay, so I'm going to get my hood. I'm so sweaty. Oh, no, you're going to get my hood. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Sadie. Congratulations for the show. Okay, we're done. Oakland, I got you. Yeah, yeah. Other than Oakland and uh, other than Oakland and some places in Germany, but even with both those places, you know. Tune in weekly to the Piper Carter podcast with Piper Carter for a conscious take on music, arts, politics, and fashion. The founder of We Found Hip Hop has a say on what you should know about culture with a balanced conscience. Subscribe on Apple iTunes or Google Play to the Piper Carter podcast to hear the stories and thoughts of Piper Carter. Follow Piper Carter on Instagram at Piper Carter.